The main thing that we've always been very conscious of is making sure that you plan for that growth rather than that growth catching up with you. So we always look at our teams and our infrastructure and think what works well, what's the best fit, what do we need to change, what hasn't worked well, and, and aren't frightened to, to make changes very quickly because that's something that I think can be disastrous to a business if you don't recognise that fast. Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Private Equity Power Talks podcast. I'm your producer, Richard Ayliffe. In this episode, we take a look at the entrepreneurial CEO's journey of founding a business, growing it successfully, and then taking it into private equity ownership. We uncover how this path to success affects your mindset towards growth, your investors, M&A, and the culture of your business. We're joined by Claire Roberts, founder and CEO of Kids Planet Day Nurseries, an award-winning group of 137 nurseries across the UK. Claire founded the business in 2008 and has since completed two private equity transactions, the first by BGF in 2016, and more recently with her current investors, Fremen Capital in 2021. This year, Claire received an OBE for commitment and dedication to the early years sector. Listen on and learn how having an entrepreneurial spirit and high adaptability lends itself to impressive levels of growth under PE ownership. Now, over to Sam and Claire. Here we are, uh, next episode of Map of the Maze, and we're in we're in Sunny Lim in September with Claire Roberts, founder and CEO of Kids Planet. Um, lovely to see you, Claire. Thanks for joining us. Not at all. Thanks for asking me to be part of this. And uh, we're delighted to have you as as one of our new honorary members in Pep's Hawks. And um, we had a dinner last night. You came along to dinner, and uh, it's a great opportunity to talk to you about your journey. Really, as a um, as an entrepreneur, uh, and then as a private equity backed CEO and really your plans plans for the business moving forward from here but why, why don't you start by just telling us how you got how you got into this business how you got started and um, and then we can take it from there okay so um, I'm I'm a mum of three daughters and I've had a bit of a varied career um, I originally worked I have an IT degree which was before the internet was even started, so it's not worth the paper it's written on. I then was a recruitment consultant for a number of years and then ended up in pharma um, as a sales rep and then as an area manager. And when I was pregnant with my oldest daughter, who's now 14, I suddenly realised that the job that I had, which I actually loved at the time, looked like it was going to become quite impossible with a young child. Um, my head office was in Northern Ireland. I used to go there two or three times every couple of weeks and suddenly you just realise how is that really going to work in, yeah. in the real world. So it was going through a bit of a strange time in pharma. This was like 2007, 2008 and they were having lots of restructures and I took voluntary redundancy and sort of did it half not really thinking about it. I just did it on the spur of the moment but was pretty confident I'd be able to do something else. I'd worked in early years in sort of the mid to late 90s. Um, my dad had had a group and I'd done it as a summer job and a day during the week. So I understood what nurseries were about. The other thing I'd struggled really personally was when I'd been looking for childcare um, for my unborn baby at this point, I couldn't find anything that was really flexible and matched what I wanted. 
Um, a lot of the nurseries in our village opened at eight and closed at six. Also as well, I think I was probably a bit fussy really as, as you tend to be when you're just thinking, what am I doing? I'm paying all this money and this is what I'm gonna get. Mm. So I think, I think really I, I was at a crossroads where I knew I needed to do something. And I actually, where I live is sort of a cross section of all the motorways and people live there to travel. They don't normally work in my village. And I thought, hang on, if I've got all these hassles, there must be loads of people that have similar problems. Why do nurseries open at eight o'clock? Why do they close at six o'clock? If there was some flexibility, would that make it more manageable for people? So I started to think, what were the barriers for me? And and then um, I suddenly thought, well, why don't we buy a nursery? So I, I sort of convinced my dad as he was supposedly retiring that we'd start again with Kids Planet. And I think at first it was sort of a bit of a joke, but then I started finding businesses for sale and took them to him. And he was like, do you really want to do this? And I was like, well, yeah, I need a job. I've got commitments. <laughs> this seems okay. And it's sort of ticking the childcare box as well. And, and I suppose I knew I could manage people. I'd had a big team that was across the north of England. And I knew how to sort of try and get the best out of people and how to motivate them. I knew bits of childcare from previously. Um, and I thought, well, Let's see how this goes. So literally we bought, we decided from day one, we weren't going to be um, a single site nursery. We bought two nurseries at the same time. So we bought one in Warrington and one in Widnes. And the one in Warrington needed a manager. So I said, right, okay, well, I'll base myself there um, and take my baby, which at this point was nine months old. So on the 1st of September 2008, um, we started that. That was actually the day that the new educational um, document was launched as well, the EYFS for early years. So my daughter's like a target example of having lived through that from the very beginning. Um, And and probably in those beginning days, well, I did, I was there seven till seven every day. And it was really hard and it was pretty brutal. I also went to university because I decided that um, whilst I had a degree, I didn't have a specific early years qualification. So I went and did what is my EYP, which is early years teacher qualification at Edge Hill. So I did that within the first year, one day a week, as well as running the nursery. As well as being a new mum. As well well. as being a new mum. But then to be fair, this is sort of why I joke and say, I never know anything but being incredibly busy and and juggling lots of different things because that's how we started. So I almost think that if you've got that kind of work ethic and you carry on like that, you know no different. But so from there, we had these two nurseries in the beginning. Very quickly, we found a building that needed converting in the village that I lived in to have a nursery there. And that obviously helped my own personal commute. Um, Did you run that one then? And so I, well, we were based there. By that point, we got to a point where we had four nurseries in that second September and we needed some kind of small head office function which was me Mm. and a financial controller and my dad was involved but very remotely and and it sort of grew at that point probably two nurseries every year a mixture mainly buildings we were buying and converting or eventually in 2012 we found a plot and we built our first nursery and then we started doing bits of acquisitions as well but I think it sort of got to a point where maybe we we're about five or six nurseries and then it felt like we were a proper group mm. and the infrastructure started to change. So sort of moving from there, um, we got to about 14, 15 nurseries. 
and we had a lot of sites that we'd acquired and were either going to build or convert. But obviously finance was what was slowing us down. Up until that point, we'd been banked by um, Barclays and my dad had invested quite a lot of money. And we made a decision then that we'd bring investors in because he wanted to get some of his money out because I think my mum was genuinely really unhappy that the money he'd made from his last exit had all been ploughed back into the sector. And, and, and so he took some money out, BGF invested in us. It was done very quickly. We sort of probably ran that process in about three or four months. We didn't speak to anyone else. A lot of people had recommended BGF to us because they were light touch. And that felt the right move for us. When was that? What year was that? That was 2016. Uh-huh. So um, at that point, I think we'd made a concerted effort in about 2012, 2013 to behave less like a family business and more like a professional company. And by that, I don't mean that we weren't doing the things that you should do, but when you work with your family, it's more on the cuff and you might have 10 conversations yeah. a day. Whereas we decided to have more formal board meetings. We put in a process, we brought in um, an external FD. My dad's um, profession is he's a chartered accountant. Mm. So up until that point, he sort of oversaw what our financial controller was doing. But we knew that you needed to look at your infrastructure to really go on a bigger journey. And that's what we mm. want, what's, what we did and what we did before BGF invested. So BGF came in. It was a bit different to start with. We had obviously strangers in, in board meetings with us. And I think it was probably the first sort of four to six months were more sort of them getting used to, because we, we are very transparent. And I think sometimes people think, oh, you might be hiding something, but we, we, we just set call a spade a spade and act the way we act in board meetings, mm-hmm. sometimes agreeing with each other, sometimes not agreeing with each other. Um, but I think very quickly, they, the reason they'd invested in us, and which was a great, is the great model of BGF, is they invest in the entrepreneur and they can recognise what your plan is and what your journey is, and they let you get on and do that. And, and that's really what we did. So they were invested in us um, from 2016 to 2021. Um, during that period, they did three further rounds of investments we went from being 16 nurseries when they first invested to being, um, it was 85, I think, or 83 when Fremen did their investment piece. Mm -hmm. It was 52 nurseries that we had prior to the pandemic. And we had quite a big growth journey during um, 2021 Mm. between probably about March time and October and that was because really our sector was a bit strange in the fact that obviously coming out of the pandemic a lot of people had 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 found it very challenging and very difficult I think there was a lot of delayed people coming to market because obviously when lockdowns happened during Covid it's very difficult to see what the numbers were and what the real value was mm-hmm. with recovery um, but we suddenly saw in sort of February March 2021 that there was a lot of people coming to market and a lot of opportunities there. And it felt that if you didn't move quickly, you could get left behind and miss those opportunities. Um, We decided in the March to um, run a process and we started that. And um, that took probably from start to finish about seven months, which was quite fast really. 
um, and Fremen completed and invested in us um, at the end of November 2021. Oh, and what's the plan now? What's your, so you're, you've got an institution investor, another mm-hmm. three to five years with them. Where, where's, what's the vision in, for the business in the next five to eight years? So I think the thing for us is we're currently the third largest operator in um, the UK. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a sector that's really fragmented. So there's huge opportunities there to grow. Um, when we were doing our process, we were approached by a number of trade um, opportunities about either them acquiring us or merging or things like that. But I felt at that point that we had still a lot of um, longevity in doing it ourselves. And it was quite important that we had a lot still to, to carry on and do. Mm. So um, I, I could imagine in the next three to five years that we would merge with another organisation, maybe similar size to us or something like that, or some, maybe slightly smaller. Um, but I imagine we'll still be private equity backed. Um, for me, I, I really, I, it sounds really sad, but I really enjoy working and I get a lot of um, personal satisfaction out of what we do and the difference that we make to children, colleagues and families. Mm. And I think whilst I feel like that and I have an amazing team who work around and support, like actually it's, it's one of these things that's really strange. A lot of people think it must be a million times harder now than it was in the beginning. And in some ways it is, but in some ways it's really not. Startups are hard, right? And yeah, totally. And, and now there's so many more talented people probably yeah. than I was in the beginning when I was winging every department that we had. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think the challenge is to make sure that as you do grow, that everyone has your ethos, your value, your vision and knows what you want to do. And that's, that's obviously been, at the rate of growth that we've had, something that we always have to reflect on because mm-hmm. for us, obviously, as the message becomes diluted from our senior leadership team, it, it, it can get lost. Mm. And actually, we do everything to try and make sure we can communicate with teams and share that purpose and vision and values. Um, I think going forward, I can imagine... So I, so I, will, I easily, in five years' time, I think we'll be inertia group at 300-plus settings. Um, but I think that the main thing that we've always been very conscious of is making sure that you plan for that growth rather than that growth catching up with you. So we always look at our teams and our infrastructure and think what works well, what's the best fit, what do we need to change, what hasn't worked well, mm. and, and aren't frightened to, to make changes very quickly because that's something that I think um, can be disastrous to a business if you don't recognise that fast. So um, you're an entrepreneur and a CEO. Yeah. You know, this is your business, you started it. I wonder if entrepreneurs like you view private equity through a slightly different lens than a sort of professional CEO, you know, in that they don't have the sort of shareholding that perhaps yeah. an entrepreneur would have had. So there's their lens is slightly different. But I think I think there's something to be learned from a from an entrepreneur, CEO and a professional CEO. So my, my instinct says that an entrepreneurial CEO actually looks at private equity as a form of funding, you know, and it's a it's a, it's a means by which you can grow um, and they're here now, but they will be gone yeah. in a fairly short period of time and there'll be another form of funding at that point. Um, but really, you're still, 
you never you never lose the sense that it's your business yeah i think i think probably being a founder and being part of a business means that you've been there since it's you obviously you've been there since it started so culturally you're so ingrained and embedded mm-hmm. in what that organization does that you you are quite key and i suppose the difficulty when you are an entrepreneur and a founder is if you ever choose to leave that how do you unravel yourself out <laughs> yeah. of that because part of the story in lots of businesses like ours it is the founder and it's the story and the journey yeah. and, but but i think yeah i suppose maybe being an entrepreneur you're probably a bit more outspoken i think that's probably something i think probably more professional background ceos might not call a spade a spade in the way that i would do um but i i've i've worked with my dad for 14 years my dad for everyone who knows him is the most outspoken person i I am a toned down version (laughs) i am a very professional version he's very professional but he would never sit there and not say what he was thinking because he just thinks it wastes everyone's time. Yeah. Um, and I think obviously we've developed a culture like that. And actually, it's a bit like challenging the nonsense. If something sounds wrong, normally it is, and and you shouldn't be frightened to speak up. I think the other thing as well is obviously private equity are a means of funding. They also come with a wealth of expertise in different sectors, and they'll have seen challenges but they don't necessarily know your sector as well as you do. Yeah. And I think it's important that when they, they, they don't just want yes people, because if they wanted to do that, surely they'd just run the business themselves. Yeah, they and the last people. thing they want to do is run businesses. Yeah, yeah. And, and so they want people who at times will challenge what they say, mm-hmm. but will listen. But also as well, I think the other thing is, and I think this is something that I've definitely learned over the last seven years, not that anyone's arrogant enough to think that they're always right, but you do have to change what you do as a company becomes bigger because just because it worked before doesn't mean as you scale up, it's always going to be the perfect way to be. I think in the early days, I was so critical to whether or not our business operated properly, and that's actually a weakness in a business. Yeah. You have to make sure that everyone else can do the job and you have that talent coming through and you've got another layer of management to do that. Otherwise, you couldn't grow. Um, and I think that's something that being private equity backed makes you recognise faster. Yeah. Is it different this time around to the BGF investment? Is it? Does it feel like a slightly different playing field? And they're, they're, are they a majority shareholder yeah. now rather than a growth capital? Yeah. So it is different. They are a majority shareholder. Um, it, we knew it was going to be different and we went into it very much with our eyes wide open. Um, but to be fair, the business that BGF had invested in versus the business that Fremen have invested in is worlds apart. Yeah. So actually, I think we'd got a bit to the point where we did need someone who was coming and being a bit more involved mm-hmm. because we were getting to such a size. But I think, I think it's like everything. I remember in the early days of BGF being invested, it's been quite similar with Fremen. There are elements of you trying to suss each other out and understanding what's important, what's key. Mm. Um, People challenge each other quite quickly early on, probably to make sure that it is all as it should be. Um, But also as well, I think what we've got at at the moment is a real clear growth strategy um, for what happens next. And I think that was a bit, that was a different approach. 
we never talked in the beginning with BGF about them exiting. If anything, it was us that brought up the conversations of exit. Whereas I think when you're majority P backed, you talk about exit from day one. Yeah. And in some ways, as an entrepreneur and a founder, that's a bit insulting to start with. And you have to get over your own ego because you have to think, well, of course, this is a transaction. Mm. And it's about creating value and create, creating growth. And of course, they'll move on. Mm. And they're not going to do that and have lost money. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's their agenda. So, so I, think, I think you have to get your head around that space and understand mm not to be too touchy about things because actually you're all in it invested as well. So you're all gonna benefit from what happens. But I suppose it is, it is, it's the knowledge that you know that in four, five years, they will go. Yeah. And actually probably with a process that's larger, it will take longer. So you start talking about, you'll probably be talking about the next exit much sooner than you really think you're going to be doing. Yeah. Um, how are you getting over some of the challenges that others are facing around, around um, your value creation plan? And I'm, I'm, we haven't talked about it before, so I'm just diving straight in, but I'm assuming M&A is quite a big part of your value creation plan, yes. buying, building. Um, but it's really expensive. Every asset is, maybe you had an opportunity immediately post-COVID, but um, you know, assets are expensive, aren't they? And they are competing for them is difficult i think it's one of those things so we so up until um our last investment we did all the m a ourselves so it would be a mixture between myself my dad and our fd doing the due diligence and we'd got to like 85 settings doing that and had a pipeline of new stuff coming through but we knew during the process we decided that we were going to put two new senior head counts into our um, structure mm -hmm. one was an M&A director and one was a people director because we didn't have those things and, and we knew they were key for the growth of the company now our sector is still strange in the fact that it's still very fragmented so about 70% now are still single site owned or small groups and we, we've got a really healthy M&A pipeline still ongoing. We're always planning ahead for the next sort of four to six months. Um, we get a lot through agents. We get a lot of opportunities through surveyors or property developers. At least a quarter of our opportunities come direct. And, and that's obviously amazing because obviously we get that direct ourselves with no one else and we build up a relationship. It is, it is very much about building a relationship with the seller as well. And for lots of people who went into childcare, they haven't, it's the first time they'll have done a transaction like this. Mm. So they do need support and they do need nurturing. And sometimes advisors or lawyers can make that very complicated yeah. and things get lost in translation. So for us, it's nurturing them, supporting them during that journey. But we haven't seen at this moment in time any sense that it's drying up yet. It's, it's some things are. Uh, some things are more expensive, some things are less expensive. We take a view on what the opportunity is and what value we can add into that as we move forward. Do they stay? Do you integrate the owners into the so into your business or do most of them sort of... Most of the owners depart? tend to exit, but that's more often because it's their retirement plan of what they want to do. Right. Um, if they want to stay around for a bit, obviously that's fine, but it... it 
where we have had situations, we've had quite a lot of situations where owners might leave, but maybe their family members are managers and they remain and that's fine. And that's happened on a new, on numerous occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it's quite difficult as well for exiting owners because we don't like coming on day one and throw everything out and start all over again. But we do make changes because integration into the business is key for us to put our control measures in and to make sure that things work um, supporting our existing mm. portfolio. And sometimes for people that's difficult to see as well. Mm. Um, but it really depends. Different people have stayed in or been involved to different degrees. But I think that's really interesting that actually it's it's the contact directly with the sellers. It's the, the profile of your business, the attraction of your business. Um, for the sellers to come to you is, is is one of the key elements of how you manage to do those transactions. If you're if you're just relying on the advisory community to bring you the yeah. assets, well, they're probably going to be quite inflated as a price. Uh, I think I think as well, um, people see in the sector that we do tr- try to do our best. Like we don't. We're not always perfect. We're not infallible. We don't always get it right, but we are there with the best intentions. For the children and colleagues and families and i think i think the other pieces as well sometimes people think that private equity backed businesses are all about stripping costs out and yeah. not investing and and we're exactly the opposite of that so it, our business is very simple in the fact that you have to keep investing the day you stop doing that your facilities go backwards and mm. people stop coming and and i do think that at times is sometimes an easy thing for any private equity about business to do would be to say, right, stop spending. Mm-hmm. But I really push back on that all the time because I know that compromises the quality and that is what makes our business work in the best way. Have you ever had that conversation? Have, have investors ever said to you, look, Claire, we think we might need to slow down now and uh, done too many acquisitions. Let's just hold on not, for a bit. Not, not necessarily about doing acquisitions. I think buying a nursery, I liken to buying a house. Before you own it, you think it's fine and you're happy to live in it, and then you move in and you realise that you don't like the carpets and the curtains. It, it's a bit like that with a nursery, and we do build that into our model now of acquisition because it invariably, they're not all carbon copies of each other, but we want every nursery to have the same feel and ethos, and that involves in the investment of the resources and the equipment. Mm. And, and I think... Maybe in the early days we used to kid ourselves that we might put up with something and then you just go, no, we're not happy with this at all. But occasionally people get carried away with spending. We, we, are, we are a bit strange in the fact that we have budgets for all our settings, but they might not necessarily know what those budgets are. So I, 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 there's an element of what people should know about budgets that I think is really important because sometimes people spend money silly if they have a budget or overspend and then have no money left for the end of the year but they were adding value with a big extension or something they were doing so we we are very flexible in what we would invest and take a view of things um but there's a big piece in our business of that integration and that property sort of maintenance side of things as well that we do as a big investment piece following an acquisition mm. i mean we're, we're we're sitting here in september 2022 and the, the sort of economic headwinds don't look particularly attractive do they I and mean, how how are you looking at that as a business how are you preparing for what could be quite a difficult challenging 12 24 months yeah i think um 
obviously some of the things that have been challenging have already started to affect our sector. Recruitment has probably been the worst I've ever seen over the last 12 months since we started Kids Planet. Um, that has been really difficult because I think it's it's been a knock-on effect from COVID where lots of people had different thought processes about what they wanted to do. So it's not that we've necessarily lost people to other nurseries. We've lost people out of the sector full stop. And I think that's part of the hybrid working side of things. Unfortunately, with the nursery business, you can't work from home. Yeah. You, you can't remotely care for children. So I suppose as the world has had a, a general shift, our sector has less so. And that maybe makes people more thoughtful about what they want to do as well. We also, it's more difficult to have very, very flexible shifts because parents want full days. Yeah. So so we, we do try to accommodate people. We do try to be flexible, but that is a real barrier within our sector of not ha- being helpful. But I think COVID made everyone look at disaster recovery and look at planning and look mm. at things like that. But I, I think for us... We started this business in the last recession and actually occupancy was high at that point. And I think that's because during a recession, childcare is really important. People start to rely more so on two family incomes Mm -hmm. because if there is risk of people losing employment, that's very difficult if you've only got one income coming in. Whereas if you have two, there's more flexibility. So I think it may have, to a certain degree, a reverse in our sector. I also think in the last recession, it was really, really easy to get um, good quality staff. So that might help our sector as well. Yeah. Um, so you're looking for the, you're looking at the positives. I, I, you're I, actually looking at I where always, the opportunity is. I always try to look at the positives. Mm. I think you have to plan in the background for the negatives, mm. but I have to think you have to face everything and see it as an opportunity. And I think that's probably the entrepreneur in me. I think if you if you don't look at the opportunity, you'll miss something that someone else will see. And in every bad situation, there's always an opportunity. It's just finding it. Yeah. How have you um, compensated for um, that recruitment challenge? Finding, I mean, you, you must need your requirement on people must be absolutely huge, uh, yeah. especially with that sort of that. that rollout and growth so uh, and I know from others in the sector they've just had a torrid time in trying to attract people they go to hospitality where they get better pay mm-hmm. uh, it's inc- incredibly competitive to get those child carers so how do you do that so I think it's um, being creative in what you do making sure you're covering all bases one of the things that we we did do in um, 2018 was we launched our academy which was, deli- which was um, delivering apprenticeships to home grow our own talent. And we became a main provider in March 2020. So we have about 450 apprentices um, at different levels across the business. And some of those are also external apprentices as well. But for us, we recognised that it was a way of making sure your colleagues were trained in the best way and making sure that when they came to you, they could do the job that you wanted to do. Because in the old days, you'd get people who say, oh, I'm a level three qualified, and you'd, they'd start, and you think, gosh, I need to retrain you. So actually, 
learning in the workplace means that people do understand the job and are able to do it really really well you also get access to that talent pool of people who want to fast track who are rising stars mm -hmm. and we've got some incredible stories of people who came to us as unqualified colleagues and are now nursery managers or area managers and i think that's a really important thing because i think our sector is always sort of given a bit of a kicking it's not seen as professionalist teaching mm. whereas actually this huge opportunity and and lots of our um childcare directors joined this as unqualified childcare workers mm. many years ago and they've worked their way up so there's i think it's for me i i believe in professionalizing our sector and making people see it as a profession um i think the other thing is as well is being flexible in areas we we do not have a a, a one pay scale fits all across the whole of england we've had to flex that and look at different pockets uh, a bit like london waiting that kind of thing mm -hmm. so particularly in more affluent areas it's really difficult to um, get colleagues that's more so because they're unlikely to live in those areas so they may be traveling further so you've got to reflect that and obviously petrol and diesel prices going up doesn't help things either so it's looking at that and looking at what we need to do on an individual basis but i think the other thing is as well is making sure that we make our colleagues feel valued because whilst pay is very important feeling like you're part of an organization that cares and has vision and purpose is often what matters more to um to colleagues and actually making sure that they realize they're not a number they're cared for and they are part of the journey i think that's key we, we do a lot of analysis on exit interviews and pay actually is not as high as people would think it would be mm. it's often other things that cause people to leave but it is something at the moment that's a big project for our people team we're looking at what can we do that will encourage people to stay more and what will add real value to them. Because I think one of the dangers is you can add a load of things and throw a load of money at stuff, but actually it doesn't get used. And so we're really looking at what will be the best way of adding extra benefits into the company. And that's a piece that we're gonna roll out um, into the new year and the next financial year. Just going back to your apprenticeship um, academy. So when you say you're a main provider, mm -hmm. you're actually providing apprentices to other nursery groups yeah. so we became a main provider in march 2020 which was just like the worst time in the world to become a main provider because who in the right mind as nurseries had closed wanted to think about <laughs> taking on more colleagues um but one of the things it, it's sort of one of those things that up until this point we've done it um quite in a relaxed way People have come to us who knew Kids Planet and have asked, would we be able to deliver their apprenticeships because they knew that we were doing that ourselves and we were a main provider. But we get, we're starting to get more um, contacts now from around the rest of England. And the plan moving forward is to grow that side of the business more. Um, we felt very strongly that it was very important that we got our delivery model right internally before we went yeah. gun cow and started offering this out yeah. to everywhere. And that for us, and one of the things, it's, it's, it's you're registered with Ofsted as the training academy in a different way to you are as an early years provider. You're regulated by the ESFA for funding because it's government funding that you're using mm -hmm. uh, to train people. So we wanted to make sure we were in a really good place before we started. Because I think if you sort of went to gun cow, 
you wouldn't have got the foundations ready within the business and like when we grew Kids Planet mm. we didn't go from zero to a hundred in a year mm. we, we grew relatively sort of steadily to start with and and now I think we're at a real comfortable point where we can roll that out more and I suppose that then brings separate challenges and we have to think then would it be better to separate that off the core business yeah. um, but their decisions will make over the coming years based on opportunities and things yeah, but you've built on it a talent engine haven't you you've built a yeah and that, recruitment engine. that's not just within early years that we do that we, we deliver leadership and management as well we do chef apprenticeships Brilliant. we've got apprenticeships for um, colleagues in our um, maintenance team yeah so it, it's basically trying to look in the absence of being able to find the talent that that you want how can you get someone in and train them and mould them into the person you want them to be? How, what, what's, what percentage of vacancies would you say that you, you fill internally through your, your academy rather than having to go externally? Really difficult to say because we're always recruiting. So whereas we're quite different, we don't say, oh, we're only going to take a cohort on in September. We're always looking for apprentices and we'll start people off at different times because we can do that because there are our own apprentices. Mm. Um, I'm sure it must be 50% of vacancies are filled mm. because I think the problem is, and this is one of the things, in the absence of being able to find qualified colleagues, you're better off taking an unqualified colleague and training them because very quickly they become qualified and it's sort of one of those things you say, oh no, I only want a qualified person, but you need a person. Mm. So actually you're better off having an unqualified person and still looking the not and I suppose that's it when we took when we when we took on two hundred apprentices in September twenty twenty, that was a really bold move because we had people still furloughed. We it was a really it was probably we were lucky BGF were really supportive and let us do that. But I kept saying, because one of the problems for early years was we had bubbles, we had isolations. If you looked at someone with COVID or in the room for five minutes, that's it, you were all gone. So it became at times really, really difficult to manage because children don't all come full time. So you could end up with all your team isolated, but the children that weren't in on that day Mm -hmm. still being able to come in. So so some of those things, it definitely got us through a time where had we not have done that, we wouldn't have we would have been closing rooms and telling parents we couldn't deliver childcare. Um, but I think as well, it provided an opportunity to a lot of young people who I think early years had become something that had become less attractive and people didn't talk about in schools. Uh, a number of years ago, the government said that you had to have GCS, G, GCSE maths and English to work in a nursery, which actually, when you look at the figures that get grade C and above, it's tiny yeah. so it basically meant a load of people who wanted to come into didn't, our sector couldn't so the problem with our sector is we've had a perfect storm in this in that recruitment was bad before covid and what covid's done is exacerbated it brexit's caused a massive problem as well because um the sectors that were reliant on overseas workers have taken from our talent pool and are paying more and yeah. so it's 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 like a it's like perfect a, storm. a perfect storm really all the more impressive than the fact what you've done you know yeah, what, yeah. what you've managed to achieve in the last 
couple but of I, years having been through that. Yeah, I think the thing is we're always trying to look at how we can improve things and we're always trying to say, okay, what could we do differently? And I think one of the things, and lots of businesses will have found this, is sometimes people have forgotten what they did before COVID. And all the time I say, we used to do that. And, and it's almost like you just have to remind people what it was that worked and what was really special. Mm-hmm. And that's constantly what we strive to do. So just last couple of questions. What, um, what, what advice would you give to yourself in 2008 now? now? Knowing what you know now and the experiences you've been through in the last 14 years or so, what, what, what advice would you give to yourself? I think I would probably say stop being so stressed. I used to, I used to not sleep at all. I had terrible insomnia probably uh, from about 2008 to about probably 2015. I used to wake up at like three o'clock in the morning and the only way I could deal with it was to make lists. And almost I felt that by writing everything down, Mm. I then had done some way of addressing it. But I think the problem is as well, is I probably in those days took on far too much and should have earlier said, actually, do you know what? It's not a weakness to say I need someone to help. And I think that's something in the beginning of any business you think you have to you do have to do it all and you do have to be hard working of course you do but i think that sometimes people f- are afraid of saying they need more support as though it's a weakness and it's not a weakness actually it's a strength because i think sometimes if you don't recognize it you'd go backwards faster mm-hmm. so so i suppose i'd i i would be i would tell my um prior self to to recognize that I think I learned that very fast and suddenly as we got to a point of scale, that was something that I now actually joke and say, I know if you want to do it, that's absolutely fine. Whereas I think I've probably gone, not not that I, not that I, of course I'm extremely hard working, but my actual Your focus, is, focus different. is different to what it was. And I think for some of my team around me, that's been difficult as well, because some of them think that I still have to make final decisions on everything. And I'm like, no, no, you can do that. I, I, I know, I know, I'm now allowing you to do that piece. But I think that's, that's difficult. And there's a lot of people who've been on our journey and have grown with us. Um, but it's important for their own professional development that they yeah. get those skills as well. But I think that's classic entrepreneurial sort of... Um challenges you know, especially if you're doing startups i mean you didn't you didn't you know you started from nothing one mm. site and you've got you haven't really got the ability to go and hire loads of talent you do have yeah. to do it yourself don't you you have to really be completely in the weeds and i think what's difficult is um knowing that point that inflection point seeing the inflection point where you think actually now's the time to go and bring in some external heavyweight experience that's going to complement me what about um a couple of pieces of advice around working with private equity then you know it's the 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 um how you need to do adapt with a with an institutional shareholder coming on board yeah i think you have to before you take the investment understand really clearly what's important to them and and make sure you're very clear why they're investing in you because that's a key point because if you know that you know that they'll trust your judgment on certain things you don't want them just to say, oh, we're only in it just to make the money. Because obviously there is that behind and no one comes into an investment to lose money. Mm. But they have to have had something that, or have to tell you something that makes you think they're the right person for you. I think very quickly, you need to decide what's important to them. And there may be things that are important to them that to start with 
are less important to you. But you've got to give it to them. But you have to give it to them. Mm. And I think you also have to recognise that they will have invested in lots of different companies and will have seen these growth stories and will have seen scale-ups and things. And you don't always know what it's going to be like when you double the size where you are now. Mm. So actually, some of the things that they may introduce will mean that you become best in class in those fields. Mm. And at the next exit, you you have different USPs maybe to the ones that you had at your previous exit. So I think that is really important. I think you have to find someone you like, someone you respect, because if you didn't, that's a terrible scenario to be in. It is a marriage for a period of time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is a marriage, and and I think you probably get to know each other better as time goes on and you know how people tick and what they do. But I I think it's basically sussing out what's important and looking and deciding together what is going to be the story or what are the focus points until the next exit. Yeah. So as much as we, I started talking about entrepreneurs seeing private equity as just really a source of funding, it's actually okay. Well, we do see it as a source of funding, but actually then we also really recognise that you know there's a partnership there and we can benefit from that partnership. Yeah, totally. I think I think so. So for us, even in the last um, nine months some of the initiatives and projects that we've worked on have been so different to what we would have done yeah. previously. And actually, it, the money that we've spent on some of those projects is like... You, you might not have done that. Never in a million years. We, we would have been far too cautious to do. But I suppose some of the things we're looking at are like improving our digital footprint and things like that and looking at our customer journey and, and recognising those things. And, and it's looking at what you invest and what you get as the return. And I think that's, that's the point. Um, as we get bigger, data and how we manage that is really key for us. And we need to be able to show that in a, in a better way. I think one of the things that is a challenge is often I'm challenged on how do you know that's going to work? And there's loads of pieces you can do around demographics, you can do around uh, potential markets of childcare. And unfortunately, my answer, which isn't very helpful, is I just know. And I, but I do just know, and I can't help the fact that I do just know that I can see an opportunity, and that's a skill that I've developed. But, but obviously, there needs to be more substance behind it. And I think that's been a change. So whereas we, we got to a point with BGF where we do acquisitions and we, we just do them. It, we didn't even need papers to get them signed off. Obviously, we, dis- we had a discussion. Yeah. Whereas it became more formal when Fremen were invested in rightly so and how we were drawing down the money from our bank and things like that. But I think that was a changing point. And sometimes we get more challenges and more questions before we complete. And obviously we don't have to answer those questions. But I think you are more answerable. Mm. Um, and you just have to adapt and get used to that. Yeah. Adapting and adopting to that way of working is only going to make you better at what you do. Yeah. Because you've got a natural, you know, one has, someone like you, an entrepreneur, has a natural instinct. Of course you've got a huge natural instinct. Otherwise you'd never have yeah. been able to do what you've done. And you'll still have that. Yeah. But that that coupled with the rigour of, you know, the um, private equity analysis uh, and data capture will just only, only help with making even better decisions. Okay, so last question. Where, how, where, where do you, who do you learn from? Where do you um, find uh, the sources of 
personal development because you, you you know the journey that you've been on from a single site to now hundreds of sites how many children do you look after over ten thousand ten and a half thousand truly frightening yeah 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 so you must your personal development um curve just must have been huge um where, yeah. where do you find your sources of inspiration and learning so i think um to start with i learned a lot from my dad i grew my dad is very entrepreneurial my dad is an is a is a strange accountant because he was a chartered well he is a, he'd always say he still is a chartered accountant um, but he'd done lots of businesses so I'd grown up seeing the element of taking risk and opportunity and I learned from that I learned a lot from him in particular of saying what you really think rather than not um, but I've learned a lot through BGF, I've learned through more recently through Frem and I learned I learned a lot through the process as well. Yeah. Because I think it's funny that we, we got to a point where we're joking and my dad used to go, I'm a bit bored of hearing the story now you. <laughs> but what is you, because you have to tell so many people the same story again and again. But I suppose you refine it and you start to think what are the key things that people seem really interested in. Mm. Um but I think you're always learning. I think if you think you're not learning and you're not growing and you're not reflecting, it's probably the time that you should give up, really. Yeah. Um, I, I know I've probably got lots more to learn still now. And I think you learn from talking to other people. I think if you talk to other people at a senior level, they'll have always faced some kind of variation of what you're going through. Yeah. And you don't have to break trust or confidentiality, but you can give them a scenario and take their view and actually it's often really good advice yeah well that fits well with us I didn't tell you to say that but that's peer learning okay. isn't it that's yeah, learning from others in the same circumstances as you um, Claire that's brilliant thank you so much for that time um, really enjoyed talking to you and um, look forward to seeing you in the next events yeah thanks for having me